I want to start by this morning with just the word I. Who is the I who says, I will build my church? The I, who is the I who made this promise? I want to take a look at a powerful scene from Revelation 5 in order to identify who this I is. I'm going to describe to you Revelation 5, 1 through 8, and then I'm going to read verse 9. I'm going to describe 1 through 8 because I want to put you in the context of this scene in this revelation of John. As if you were John experiencing these things. You're in heaven. You're gazing upon the very throne of God. And in his hand is a scroll. Well, no one knows the exact contents of this scroll. The idea here is that God has a book in which the history of the world has already been written in advance. And he is about to initiate the consummation of all of history. And only God can hold this scroll. And no one is seen at first to be worthy to open the scroll that God holds in his hand. That is to bring history to its appointed consummation. And John weeps. Because nobody is found. Nobody is worthy to open this scroll. And then one of the 24 elders in Revelation, in this scene, speaks up and says, Weep no more, because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he's worthy to open the scroll. And then the the Bible describes this lion-like lamb, and yet uh, this lamb-like lion that takes the scroll. And the elders and the creatures around the throne all burst into singing. And that's where we get into verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. My friends, as I... As we we have sought to encourage you to mission this week, I want to remind you that there is only one who is worthy to bring history to its appointed conclusion, to conclude God's redemptive plan for rescuing his beloved. And that one is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. He was slain that we might be ransomed and he will be faithful to fulfill his mission. His holiness is then declared by millions of angels. And it gets a little weird. We get talking birds and horses and fish. And they're all just singing, confirming the greatness of God. I heard the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So at least two million saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I read for you this magnificent passage that is beyond even our comprehension as one who is not always super creative naturally. My, it stretches the very links of my imagination to envision such a scene. And yet the one described as worthy is the one who says, I will build my church. And therefore we trust fully knowing that will happen. The Lion of Judah is not dependent on you to accomplish his work. Yet, 
He calls you. This is why Paul was so quick to point to Jesus over and over again. In Romans 15, 18, he says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So Paul's doing ministry. He's speaking the truth. He's sharing with his one. God is changing people. And Paul is so aware of the goodness of God that he acknowledges, like, I'm not even doing anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Christ changed the hearts of people, but he chose in grace to use a humble vessel like Paul. And in that, Paul would discover what true joy, what it is to sing out of a place of real joy. Just as in an abundance of grace, he has chosen to use you and to call you. And the question is, why, why would he do such a thing? Seems like a very inefficient model. Okay. And I want you to just take a minute. I want to invite you to do something a little different this morning. I just want you to posture yourself to hear some words that I just want to read over you for a minute. I want you to hear these things. These are verses where God is speaking of you and of his delight in you. And I want you to set aside all the things, all the thoughts in your head of things I need to do better or I'm not good at. Like what prevents us often from mission is the reality of like, I can't do that. That just makes me feel guilty. Like, put all that aside, all of that silliness. And I just want you to hear for a minute of God's delight in you. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. Christian, in your salvation, the Lord rejoices over you in gladness. As a child, over as a father, loving, proud father over their child. Psalm 147.11 The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. Christian, because of Jesus, the Lord takes pleasure in you. Like those who, who follow the Lord, the, the Lord of Heaven, the Lord of all things, the Lord who spoke all things into being, takes pleasure in you. In 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That even in the midst of our trials, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But that's his intent for us in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Like the Father desires to delight in you. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Not on the basis of what we accomplished, but on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. And maybe nowhere is this more clearly spoken than Psalm 18, 19. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
through Jesus, the eternal gap separating us and God was closed, closed, closed. Yesterday, if you had the pleasure of being at our men's study, we talked about the atonement and the reality that God being perfectly, God is perfectly loving and desires and loves his children perfectly. But God could not just overlook trespass because God is also perfectly just like he's not he's not just limited to perfection in one area. He's completely perfect. So he's perfectly loving, but he's perfectly just and perfect justice demands a perfect payment. So God being rich in mercy out of an abundance of love and justice paid that payment for us. Put on flesh and he left heaven and he came and he completed that which the law required and did so perfectly. So that now when the father looks upon you like the debt is paid, he can look upon you and out of a place of perfect justice, he can declare you righteous. But yet he also delights in you, Christian. He looks upon you and he delights in you. He rescued me, the psalmist said, because he delighted in me. I don't do series like this a lot. This month has been a little different. And I'm going to tell you there's a reason why. Because even though the things we've talked about are true, we need to evangelize. We need to live a life on mission. Mission is like anything else. We can turn it into our newest form of legalism like that. We're fully capable of that. But mission, the mission of God... Us living as sent ones was never meant to flow from a heart trying to vie either for being a savior, because you're not. You can't rescue anybody. You can stack the wood, but you don't have any fire. And it was never meant to vie to come from a heart trying to earn the favor of a father. Mission is the natural fruit of a child of God who is captivated by the love of God. This week, we're going to talk about this more in the weeks to come. But you might have noticed we have this little chart over here, this tree. And I'm, going to, I'm not going to talk about that in detail today because we're going to talk about that a lot in April. But I sought to kind of put together a visual image of what it means to grow as a disciple at Rooted Church, as a part of Rooted. And if you notice on that tree, the roots of the tree go down into the gospel, that we are rooted in Jesus. And as we are growing in our knowledge of the truth of the gospel, as our delight in the good news, as our delight in Jesus grows, the trunk begins to go, that seed turns into a tree. Our value, who we identify as, begins to be birthed out of that. We begin to realize that we're, we're family. We're adopted heirs to the throne of grace. And we're, we're, we're created in the image of a missionary God that we are called to be an incarnate people. We're missionaries. And we're called to continue to grow in these things as disciples. And as we're rooted in the gospel and we're growing in these identities and that trunk begins to get stronger, we're growing in our delight of the Lord. Well, all of a sudden, springtime comes and buds begin to sprout. And all of a sudden, disciples began to be made and missionaries begin to be mobilized in the places God's called them. And by God's grace, churches begin to be multiplied. But all of that is only healthy if it is fruit born out of a people growing in delight in the gospel. This week, 
I attended a, a meeting with a lot of other pastors and uh, just had some time just to study and reflect on my own and, and issues in my own heart. And I was reading Song of Solomon 5, 6. I was reading Song of Solomon chapter 5, but in verse 6, it describes um, this scene of a maiden longing for her lover. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved, beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but I found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Often ministry or mission feels a lot like that. Like we want, we want good things to happen, but then it's like we call out and it seems like there's nothing, nothing happening. Nothing comes as a result. But what if God, what, what I felt in that moment, even in reading that text, like what if God's purpose in these moments is to foster in us just a longing for him? Like the maiden is just longing to be with her beloved. And sometimes like the most gracious thing God can do in our life is just foster in us a longing to just be with him. Like we're, we're guilty of like we wave the keys in front of people. Like here's the gospel. Here's how you enter in. And we can wave the keys. But often we're guilty of never actually entering in and being in the presence of God. We, we can talk about these things, but are we really being transformed by them? Am I, am I in God's presence? Am I, am I delighting in who he is? Am I inviting that even into my life? Church, I want to remind you this morning that you are, if you are in Jesus, if you are a believer, you are loved by the Father. He delights in you. My prayer today is that the mission of Jesus will be fulfilled in us as a result of us growing more satisfied in him. Jesus says, I will build. And in John 20, he tells the disciples exactly how he wants to build. 19 through 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Father delights in you. And as the Father, Jesus says, as the Father who delights in the Son, who delights in those who have been redeemed by the Son, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. The the incarnation, the reality that God put on flesh, that he moved out, uh, he left heaven, he moved into the neighborhood, he came to be among us. The implication of the incarnation, the truth that Christ was sent has a, a huge implications on how we live out the gospel, how we desire to live out the gospel, what it looks like to be a transformed people living on mission. Number one, we, we have comfort. He has been where we are. God is not unfamiliar with the difficulties of this world. He's not unf- unfamiliar with, with sickness. He's not unfamiliar with hurting. He's not unfamiliar with poverty. He's not unfamiliar with brokenness. We can go to him for comfort as one who knows who in every way has been tested as we are. We can have confidence. 
We rely on the strength of the one who opened the scrolls. He was the only one worthy, and he did. We can have confidence uh, as we seek to live boldly in response to the gospel because God is who he says he is. And he's our model for mission. He doesn't just tell, like, I can be guilty as a pastor of trying to figure out, like, what's the strategy for building the church? Like, what, what new technique, what new? But no, like, Jesus, God gave us the strategy. He, like, gave us all the perfect jewels that are needed to build up his church. And Jesus models mission for us. And I'll share with you a few ways he does that. An incarnational life, meaning a life that reflects the incarnation of Jesus, crosses cultural barriers with the gospel. That Jesus went to those whom whom society wouldn't have went to. That he was not merely uh, there to be with his own kind. It wasn't, it wasn't like when the disciples gathered together, like the ultimate care wasn't just the good of insiders, but it was the salvation of outsiders. And they crossed cultural barriers in their neighborhood and cities and to the ends of the earth that the good news of the gospel might be known. In Luke 19, Jesus described, gives his mission statement, like I came to seek and save the lost. An, incarnate, an incarnational life is devoted to the church and cares for the bride. Like the bride is, like Christ died for his bride. And as a, a people who follow after Jesus, like we, we care for that. We desire to see that flourish and for the lost to come. And we desire to, that God might seek and save the lost and that he might invite us as his church along the way. And an incarnational life is focused on making disciples. That Jesus was, was very intentional to, to invest in the lives of a few, that they might be raised up, and that the God that, that just like a seed planted in the ground, they would multiply and new trees would be sprung forth. This seems to be a consistent model, whether it's making disciples or planting churches. The seed of the gospel goes in, is invested in, a tree grows up, fruit falls off, many more trees are planted. He says, he, he, he says, like we know who he is. He declares he will build and he shows us how he will build. And he says, I, I will build my church. It's interesting, his use of the word church here, because it's the first use of the word church in the New Testament, or for that matter, in the entire Bible. It's the first use of that word. He used the ancient Greek word ecclesia. Significantly, this was well before the beginning of what we normally think of as the start of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We see in that that Jesus was anticipating what would come from these disciples and those who would believe in the message of Jesus. They would be his people. The term ecclesia means this this called out group, this set apart group. Like Jesus was anticipating even there what was about to come. The bride that he would die for, that he cared for, that he desires, that he delights in. He was was prophesying of this even at this moment. Our understanding of the call of the local church, of the ecclesia of God, begins with rightly turning our gaze to the glory of God. He is eternal. He is glorious. He has no beginning and he has no end. 
He was not made, but he always was and he always will be. He has no equal. He has no rival. He existed before there was anything else, before time, before space, before anything, before everything. Time itself was created by him in order that we might not explode, like that we might have a framework to live within. But he is not bound by that. Yet he was not lonely, for God is triune. He is one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Perfect community, three in one, and one in three. To gaze upon the glory of the Lord is to be stretched. He cannot be contained in little boxes. Christian, often the thing we most need to live a life on mission is to be just intentional in our desire to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. In gazing upon the glory of the Lord, everything changes. Paul never recovered from the moment that he saw a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. It changed everything. It changed the rest of history. And Paul declares, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He is one. He is three. He is transcendent and mighty above all. But yet he is intimate and he is by our side. He is fully God, Christ. But Christ was fully man. He's a roaring lion, yet he is also a slaughtered lamb. Christian, his glory is abundant. It never runs out. The depths of what his word has for you, like never depletes. You never get the whole thing. No human has ever walked to this earth and been like, man, I... I think I passed the whole class. Like I got the whole done. The coursework's all done. I'm just there. Like it just doesn't work that way. It's living and active and, and breathing. And it just never stops. Like we always are growing in just our awareness of who he is. And it's always changing us. The church, his church, I will build my church that is intended. It's intended to glorify him. Through our delight in him. John Piper, when speaking of Christian hedonism, has come, become kind of famous for like his, like his most popular phrase. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Christians, I, I, I say this today because, Again, like a series like this, a challenge to identify that one and to go forward with the gospel. Don't let that become like, that's not a, just a burden cast. That's not a new form of legalism. That's not a box to check. But it's an invitation by the Father to come sit with him at his workbench of grace. That the Father does not need you to, to accomplish his work. But yet he is intentional in that the, the gospel goes forward this way because God loves and delights in you and wants you to be with him as he does what he does. I've told this story before, but it's been a while. Like I grew up with a dad who was uh, he built custom knives in Wyoming and we traveled. I traveled all over the country as a young boy with my dad. We'd go from knife show to knife show. My dad built beautiful knives when I was a young kid. And I remember the smell of his workshop. Like, I just remember being down there all the time while Dad would bend the metal and do all these beautiful things. 
And as a young boy, I used to sit in that workshop, make a mess. I was just down there like banging blocks of wood together. And I believed as a young boy that I was an essential part of this operation. I mean, J&R Custom Knives stops if I am not in that workshop. Like, this is me and dad's deal. Like, he needs me. I could probably do it without him, but it's good that he's here. It wasn't until I got older that I began to realize, like, Dad doesn't need me. Dad doesn't need me in here. If nothing else, I slowed this operation down an, an enormous amount. And I realized, like, my dad wants me to be here, not because he needs me, but because he loves me, because he delights in me. Because he wants his boy to be with him, that I might learn to love what he loves and know what he knows. Like, that's why my dad wants me there. In the same way, mission, we can very much become just like me as a young boy. We, we feel, like, you know, my dad needs me for this. And then when I don't live up, when, I'm, when my banging blocks together doesn't produce any fire, I begin to feel disheartened. But that's not the point. The point, the point isn't you go make this happen. That's not what Jesus tells the disciples. No, he breathes on them and says, okay, now you have the, like the power of God. The spirit of God is going to go with you. I'm going to do it, but I'm gonna, you're going to come with me. So like we don't move forward, like our, our, the, in, even whether we're talking about evangelism or we're talking about just planting a church, like the, the point is go forward and make this happen. The point is, delight in me. Sit with me at the workbench of grace as I do whatever I choose to do. It's like, we don't get to pick that part. Jesus will rescue who he wills. He'll do with his church what he wills. He doesn't call us to success. He calls us to faithfulness, which means just being with him and delighting in him. As the Father teaches us to love the things that he loves, which is his people. That's the point of mission. That's the point of who you're one, who's your one, is the Father delights in rescuing his children, and he's glorified in that, and he invites you to take part of that. For the sake of displaying his glory and in love, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made all that has been made, including the bride of Christ, his church. All of creation exists for the display of his glory and greatness, most especially the bride of Christ, the children of the Holy Lord. In this book, Explicit Gospel, Matt Chandler summarizes this. God, who is ultimately most focused on his own glory, will be about the business of restoring us who are all broken images of him. His glory demands it. So we should be thankful for a self-sufficient God whose self-regard is glorious. Not one inch of creation is above his rule. The Bible declares this over and over again. Our God is in the heavens and he does that which he pleases. Psalm 115.3 He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 no purpose of his can be thwarted. Job 42.2 and Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
the seas and the stars, the mountains and the hills, the light and the darkness, the amoeba and the whale. It all exists to show the splendor of God that we might be captivated by him and delight in him. Yet the pinnacle of God's creation and the chief expression of his glory is you, is man. When we consider these five words, I will build my church, the promise is incredible. He builds on a firm foundation on this rock. And Peter was never the foundation, but would himself point to the true foundation. Peter understood this rightly. He said in 1 Peter 4, 5, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Like Peter acknowledged who the foundation was, as we talked about last week, the foundation, the rock that springs forward from the ground and his salvation is a place of safety for those who are in him. But when the floods of justice flood the earth, it becomes a a rock of stumbling for those who are outside of Christ. Peter acknowledges himself that Jesus is that foundation. He builds a firm foundation. He brings his people together. I will build. God is like... We sit in this room here together today because Jesus drew us together. Like he will build his church and he'll use all kinds of crazy ways to do that. Like being neighbors, knowing somebody at work, you know, I mean, Rob was just looking for good barbecue and he ended up here. But the very God himself, like he builds his church. He draws the people together. He builds something that belongs to him. My church, he says. If you had the pleasure on Friday night of being at Alan and Mia's wedding, like the beautiful thing about weddings, like the last wedding I did before Alan and Mia's was a coworker I had. She does not love Jesus. I pray that one day she will. I'm thankful to be her friend and that she would allow a Christian pastor to do her wedding. But it was just a totally different thing. Like we didn't talk about the gospel. It was just, it was just, it was kind of shallow, really in comparison to what I experienced Friday night. Like, Alan and Mia, what made that night so special and worshipful is that what happened to them was reflective of of the ultimate marriage. Like, Alan and Mia, like, what the what, what we talked about for six months was the reality that what, what they were committing to, the covenant they were going to make, was to testify of the perfect Savior's love for his church. That's why God tells husbands, like, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He builds something that belongs to him, his church. If you are in Jesus, Christian, you belong to Jesus. You are his bride. Before you worry about all the things you feel like you're inadequate and can't accomplish, just commit your, just, just, if you're going to, just one thing, like, just, just be with him. Just invite time into your life to just delight in him because he delights in you and it's only in that it's only in in that transformation that any fruit comes out that any fruit is produced jesus loves you delights in you and if i just stood here and said that over and over again a hundred times that would be a substantial message and truth that you need drilled into your brain because it changes everything He delights in you. 
as we close here today. I want to, again, I also want to do something a little different. I'm going to read from Psalm 90, verse 14 through 17, and I'm not just going to read this. I want to read this just over you as a prayer for you, as a prayer for us. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your righteous, glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God, I just I, I just asked this of you this morning. Lord, would your favor be upon us? Lord, would you establish the work of our hands? But God, forgive us for just our our natural tendency to uh, just to turn even your call into just another form of just trying to to earn righteousness or, or just as a very thing that pushes us away from you because we know we can't accomplish it. Lord, I... I just ask you, Holy Spirit, would you invite us to just come and delight in you? Holy Spirit, there's so many things that vie for our affections. There's so many places that um, God just, just offered to sell us identity. And then all and then a little microscopic, you know, uh, illness, you know, shows up and floating in the air, and all of a sudden everything about our identity can come crashing down. It's, it's, we're just silly. Holy Spirit, would you, uh, would you just invite us to something more? Invite us this week. Speak to us, draw us, do whatever you must. Maybe it's the, maybe it's being uh, locked in our houses for a couple of weeks that we need to do it. Would you, but whatever, and by whatever means you will, would you just draw us into the throne room of grace? Would we not just wave the keys of the gospel or, or have them on a book bargain in our Bible, but would we go into the room, would we sit before you, would we just and be in your presence, would we delight in you? God, we're not able to do that on our own. There, there are some, even just some of us who maybe have never experienced that. Who this maybe this has just always just been a thing that we just kind of do culturally. Uh, Lord, would you just would you just break down doors? Would you knock over walls? And would you captivate hearts with the, the, just your glory? Lord, like Paul, would you just just kick us off our horse if you must? And just reveal yourself in power that we might see all that our hearts have ever longed for. Lord, for those of us who have been captivated by that grace, 
give us wisdom to just be intentional with our lives and inviting space to delight in you. And Lord, with the work that you do in our hearts as we grow in the gospel, would that be the work that produces fruit? Would that be where mission comes forward? Lord, I I pray that you would make disciples out of rooted. I I pray that you would mobilize missionaries uh, among us. Lord, I pray that you would multiply churches. But Lord, I, I, I beg that you not let us do those things. But please, like, don't let us accomplish those things by our power. But instead, God, would you would you do those things through us, through your power, that they might be abundantly more magnificent and sweet-smelling to you, testifying of your goodness and grace to this city and beyond. Lord, only you can do that. We're dependent on you fully, and we come to you asking these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. This morning... At this time, we come to our time of communion. We come to our communion time, and we take the bread. And we recognize like the bread reflects Christ's body broken for us. We take the bread as Christ's body was broken on our behalf, so our, our sin was broken before. Uh, like our, our, our record of imperfection and, and just vast sinlessness. Our, our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. And our sin that is many is broken on the anvil of grace. And so we come and we take the bread, recognizing uh, that broken record because of Christ's broken body. Like that he, that God sent his only son to, to, to live this perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that there no longer be condemnation for us. But everlasting joy in Christ that the Father might now look upon us with delight. And so we take this broken bread and we dip it in the juice. And the juice reflects Christ's blood poured out. And with his blood being poured out, so the very righteousness of Christ was poured out among us. So when the Father sees us, we no longer have a broken record to, to, to share. Like we don't go to him with that, but we go to him with the perfect record of Jesus. That God gave us that gift because he delights in us. And so we take the bread, we take the juice, and we hold in our hands the truth of the gospel, the truth our hearts need to believe That being the very gospel itself. And so this morning, I want to invite you just to take a few moments uh, where you are. And and again, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Like, maybe you haven't done, maybe this is the first time in a week that you've done this. Maybe this is the first time in a year that you've done this. And in either case, there's just an abundance of grace for you. But I want to invite you for a few minutes just to sit in the quiet and just gaze upon the glory of God. Ask for help in that. The Spirit promises, like, he's your helper. Like, he'll come and he'll help you with that. But I just want you to just take a moment and remember who Jesus is. Consider the great I am. Like, the I who will build his church. Consider who he is and what he's done for you. And then when you're ready, come and partake of the great communion supper. Christian. Christian.